Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week's gospel lesson is actually an extension of last week's. The people who were in charge at the temple in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders had come together in order to question Jesus because all he had done since he had arrived at Jerusalem is create a triumphal entry on the back of a donkey with people yelling and screaming and singing hallelujahs and recreating, basically reenacting the 118th Psalm, which is a story about the boy David, one who was seen as too small to accomplish anything, being raised up by God's power until he had become the king who united all of Israel, all 12 tribes. And it was to David that God said, your descendants will sit upon this throne forever. And even after the deportation, even after 500 years had gone by since the people had been conquered by Babylon and been brought back to Jerusalem, the temple was prospering, and the temple officials felt a deep burden to keep that temple going, just keep it going. Now Jesus and his disciples had been traveling through the north in the region of Galilee and they'd been healing and they had been working miracles. They had been uh, pro proclaiming the kingdom of God. Lots of dusty trails, lots of hot afternoons, lots of dinners in the homes of people where they were guests, lots of time on the road and the multitudes, always the multitudes, more and more people proclaiming that this might be the one, this might be the Messiah. And everybody in the north, always with an eye to Jerusalem, one day we're going to head down there and we're going we're to reveal the splendor and the glory of God and we're going to reveal God's Son to the world and Messiah will take his rightful place as our king. And by the way, send the Romans packing once and for all. With all these expectations, they came to Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem the authorities in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem on behalf of the people came to Jesus and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who said you could? So he told a parable last week about two sons. We looked at that. And this week, another parable about a vineyard. Matthew couples them together because they have vineyards in their theme. It seems a landowner bought a vineyard and he needed somebody to tend the vineyard. So he hired some tenants and he said, I'm going away, take care of this, I'll get in touch with you when it's time for the harvest. And he looked on his calendar and he saw that it was time for the harvest and he sent some of his slaves off to collect from the tenants that which was rightfully the landowners. Per the agreement, the lessor and the lessee had agreed that at a certain time the proceeds would be given over. And so they came with a message from the landowner. Lessee, all you people who are living here as lessees, lessee, what you got? Answer 
And they said, we'll tell you what we got. And they disrespected them. They abused them. They beat them. Matthew says some of them they even killed and they tossed them out. A coup was underway. Squatters' rights, finders' keepers, the golden rule, whoever has the gold, rules. They had fortified against the landowner. The parable that Matthew tells says that he sent several waves of slaves, and finally he said, look, they're going to respect my son. They'll respect my son. The family name will count for something. And so he sent his son, and they said to themselves, this is the heir. If we get rid of the heir, we'll disincentivize this entire operation, and he'll just give up on the project once and for all. So they took hold of the son, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. At which point comes the pregnant pause that Jerry just spoke about. And Matthew says that as Jesus was telling this story, he turned and he asked the chief priests and the others, now what do you think the landowner is going to do when he finds out that they've killed his son? And they rightfully said, he'll restore justice. He'll get those people out of there. He'll destroy their legacy. He'll throw them into the pit of hell. And they deserve it. And then Jesus turned to them and said, And so the kingdom of God, even as we speak, is being taken away from you and handed to someone else. Sinners and tax collectors, people that you esteemed of no value at all, when John came and said, prepare the way, they listened. And they were ready to receive the kingdom and they were ready to receive me, but you have not. And so comes the fulfillment of an old scripture, that the stone that was rejected by the very builders themselves, God has laid as the foundation stone of a brand new faith. And for some people, when they stub their toe on it, it will be their destruction. And for others, when that weight of that stone falls upon them and the penny finally drops, it will crush them. It will crush them. I peeled back in Isaiah and I looked at all those references to cornerstones. And I saw something remarkable in Isaiah 28. Chapter 28, verse 16. See, I am laying in Zion a, a new stone, a cornerstone, a trusted and precious stone. And then a colon, a punctuation mark that stops you right in the middle of the sentence and says, whatever comes after is the stone that I am describing, precious and sure. And in quotation marks right there is this sentence. One who trusts will not panic. He's talking about faith. One who trusts will not panic. You see the echo of that sentiment in your most favorite of all the verses of Isaiah. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not grow faint. One who trusts will not panic. Oh, that's a verse, that's a concept, that's an idea that will cause activists to set their hair on fire. Maybe why I don't have any more. I have a touch of the activist in me sometimes. Oh, I get so frustrated with the way things are. I get so, why doesn't somebody do something about the way things are? When, in God's name, are we going to do something about the way things are? And all I get from the Lord when I fall on my knees in this place and I stretch myself out on that floor and say, Lord, have you gone to sleep on us? And all I get is one who trusts will not panic. I have stubbed my toe on that idea more times than I can count. Hmm. There was another vineyard in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to tell you a love story. That God planted a beautiful vineyard and he set it up to succeed and everything was going well. But then when he came to look for the fruit, it was bitter and sour and it set the teeth on edge. And so here's what God is going to do. He's going to tear down the walls around the vineyard, and he's going to open it up, and he's going to let it become a wild vineyard. And then in verse 7, Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting." And he looked for justice, and he found bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, and he heard wailing and cries. And that's when it hits for me that Matthew's not telling this as a story about the Jewish faith having to be handed off to the Christian faith. By the time Matthew wrote these words, the temple had indeed been destroyed. And the people of God had been scattered in all directions by the Roman occupation. But the church was still alive. The people of God were going forward. And it would not be for someone like Matthew or anyone else to dance in celebration in the end zone because God's people in Jerusalem had suffered so. No, Matthew writes these words as a warning to his church. That the standard of God isn't whether we're Jewish or Christian, but the standard of God is whether we, who are the tenants in his vineyard, are bearing fruit. That's the standard. It's a question for us today. We're tenants here. And I'm not just talking about this property where Fumco is, but we are tenants. We are servants. We are stewards in this generation in Southern California. This is our time to work in the vineyards of the Lord. And the God of Scriptures is coming. He's sending his servants to say, it's harvest time, friends. Lessie, what you got? What is the fruit of our lives? It's a question that we have to ask wherever our lives touch. Now, I can't conceive of a time when I will ever be elected to office in Washington. 
And so I have to let what's happening there go. And I can't conceive of a time when I'm ever going to run for a local school board or a city office. No, that's not what I'm called to do. So I have to let what's happening at the public and civic levels go to a large extent. But I am a pastor in the body of Christ and an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. And this is something for which I'm responsible. For what are you responsible? What have you taken on in the name of the Lord? More than that, I'm an individual believer. I'm a baptized Christian. And I'm absolutely responsible for everything in that part of my life. Open up your checkbook when you get home tonight. And look at that through the eyes of Jesus Christ as a steward of his. And how you've been spending the money that he put in your hands to be a steward of. And listen to him say, hey, Lessie, what you got? Where's my harvest? Open up your date book on Monday morning and look at all the appointments that you have set. You who have been given a steward of this time in your life. And listen with me as Jesus asks us, hey, you lessees, what you got? Where's the part in this week where you're tending my work? Where's the part of this week when you're bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Have you announced God's kingdom to anyone? Have you told somebody about the good news? Have you shared with anyone besides the man in the mirror that Jesus Christ is alive? and He holds the power of the resurrection. He holds the keys to hell and death. And those who trust in him will never panic, but live forever. Where are our spare moments going? When you close your eyes and you are daydreaming, your mind wanders, are you thinking about the NFL? Are you thinking about the Dodgers? I am. Are you thinking about fun things to do or that movie that you haven't seen yet? Is there ever a moment when you close your eyes and you can see Jesus walking across the fields in north part of Galilee where you watch him break the bread and impossibly it multiplies itself again and again and again? And can you see the people filled to satisfaction at his feet? Do you hear the laughter of the children as he welcomes them and sets them on his knee? when no one else in the town wants anything to do with those children? Can you see it? When you close your mind, do you wander into the landscape of your scriptures and commune there with Christ? For Matthew, it was a pretty simple formula. The fruit that he was expecting was righteousness. That the people of God would be a righteous people and loving kindness, that the people of God would be a compassionate people. And he was looking for courageous testimony. In the face of persecution, that people would keep the testimony of Christ and do it the Christ way.
As a preacher these days, I spend more time undoing the caricature of Jesus that is portrayed by Hollywood, television, the media, and other preachers who want to tell you that it's just all going to be okay, that it's just all going to be fine, and, and, and that actually your certificates of deposit and your treasury bills are going to grow tenfold if you just come to Christ. It's going to be just like that. I spend more time trying to get people to put down the caricature of Jesus and walk into the Scriptures and find the real Christ there. Because he is the Son of God, but he is the Son of God the way Isaiah laid out the suffering servant. The one who comes not to conquer, but to take upon himself the sin of the world. And we as his stewards, we as his tenants, we as his children are meant to take upon ourselves in this generation all of that sin that we might demonstrate the surpassing love of God. Is this making sense? We do battle with the caricature of Jesus. How often have I heard it in my time as a pastor? Oh, if my people, said the author of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn and seek my face, then I will hear them and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. I hear people say this all the time and, and they're saying if we could just teach our nation to pray again, God would heal our nation. And I'm thinking amen in my heart, but as I listen carefully, what they're saying is if we could just teach our nation to say prayers again. And there's a big difference. There's a huge difference. There's an eternal difference between people who say their prayers and people who pray. But if you don't know the difference, come to ask on Wednesday night. We have a prayer class there. You can stand and empty yourself all day long, heaping up phrases, memorizing prayers, saying things. But to sit at the feet of God and expose yourself to his eternal majesty and power is the most humbling, withering process. And there's no other way to life except that way. None. Nothing we can pursue in this world will get us home. God has to pick us up and carry us there. As an individual, and as a church, and as a nation. As an entire race. Checkbook, calendar, stray thoughts. There's one place I hope God does not look these days when he asks all of us who live in the most faithful nation that has ever existed I hope he's not watching the headlines today as he comes to the vineyard looking for fruit ah 
Master's on his way. The harvest time is soon. We have some work to do. We got to calibrate ourselves so that when we hear him say, hey, lessee, what do you got? We can lift our head in that day and give thanks because we, we have do, been doing the work of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we live to serve him with joy and gladness. Amen? Amen.